Hey, Tim. It's so great to see you here. You too, Katrina. But wait, where exactly is here? It's as if our two podcasts have somehow collided to make some sort of global New Hampshire super podcast. I agree. Listen, by our powers combined, we are the, the keeper, keeper of, of the, the global, global in the, the Granite, Granite State podcast. Okay, so with that bit of silliness out of the way, we welcome all the listeners of the Global and the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. And The Keeper, brought to you by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. We welcome you to this exciting collaboration. We're joining forces today to kick off The Keeper's new season while bringing the Global and the Granite State audience a bit of bonus content as we head into the end of the year. For those who might not know, I'm Katrina Lantos-Sweat, president of the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice, headquartered in Concord, New Hampshire. And I am Tim Horgan, executive director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, 20 minutes down the road in Manchester. We are here today to host a conversation on an issue that has taken on greater importance this year, as both the Winter Olympics and the World Cup landed in 2022. Not only are these major international sporting events happening in the same year, there is something else that ties them together, human rights, or really, a lack thereof. From the disappearance of Peng Shua, the Chinese tennis star, to the inhumane conditions for workers in both China and Qatar, and the abysmal human rights records of these host countries, it has been a tumultuous year for the sports world when it comes to human rights. Well, and listen, I know we do not have time to list off all of the rights violations that have occurred even just in the past year, which is a huge problem. But now you have Saudi Arabia hosting a golf tournament where there has been a big backlash against the players accepting huge payouts from a government that has been accused of some really terrible human rights abuses, including the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. You also have the NBA folding in the face of Chinese pressure to crack down on teams, players, and even owners who speak out against the repressive Chinese Communist Party. And most recently, we saw the very concerning treatment of Iranian climber Elnaz Rikavi, who competed without a hijab and now appears to be under house arrest. Even amid all these thorny and complex issues, there are plenty of people who just want to sit back, enjoy the game, and not think about anything other than the skill, strength, and athletic prowess of the athletes. She is absolute state of the art right here. The most dramatic story of the season. A bit deep on the landing, but that's okay. She's still got a massive amount of height and distance. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's been a joy playing in front of you guys all these years, so thank you. But should we be the kind of sports fans that care about more than just who wins the match or who takes the gold? Well, Tim, that's the right question, and that is precisely what we will explore in today's episode, as well as the rest of our upcoming season on The Keeper, 
about the fascinating and often infuriating ways that sports and human rights intersect. Now, this is certainly not a new issue in the world, as we have long seen major examples of sports ignoring human rights, countries using sports to distract from their abhorrent human rights records, and international organizations profiting off these sporting events while turning a blind eye to what is really going on. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? Yes, Maximus, a.k.a. Russell Crowe in the movie Gladiator. Uh, we are entertained by sports, and there is something unique and special about the quote-unquote purity of sports. But no, we should not be entertained by one of the first examples of sports blatantly ignoring human rights. I cannot think of a better example than the gladiator fights of ancient Rome to illustrate what it looks like when a global power uses sport to distract from horrible human rights conditions, to spread propaganda for the people in power, and to create profits, often for those same people in power. These bloody, brutal, to-the-death fights not only completely trampled the human rights of the athletes, better known as the enslaved people or prisoners who were forced to fight to the death against their will as gladiators, the games were also used to distract the commoners from thinking about the very real social and economic problems facing Rome. And you know what, Tim? There's a 21st century term for that 1st century BC practice you just described. It's called sports washing. And we're gonna to get to that in a minute. But first, let's talk a little bit about what we mean when we say sports disregards or distracts from human rights. I often find that people use the term human rights but don't necessarily have a clear idea of what we mean by it. I think we can agree that the modern idea of human rights really came about in the aftermath of the Second World War. We saw the establishment of the United Nations, the Nuremberg trials that held Nazi war criminals accountable for their outrageous crimes against humanity. And of course, we saw the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is really a pretty comprehensive list of the fundamental rights that all human beings should possess, simply by virtue of being human. They don't have to earn them. They don't have to merit them. These are the rights that come to them simply by virtue of the fact that they're part of the human race. And this is a subject I have the very exciting opportunity to teach at Tufts University so I could go on about it at great length and put on my Professor Katrina hat. But I suppose in the simplest terms, human rights are the legitimate, valid claims that every human being has on the society that they live in. And one thing that I'd like to ask and go a little bit off script here on is what does it mean for human rights when we all come from different cultural backgrounds? I know you guys are going to get into this a little bit later in your series, but I think it's something key to really focus on. How can we be culturally cognizant of these differences while still identifying these fundamental human rights? It's a great question. And actually, some of the brilliant minds that together drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, in fact represented a variety of cultural traditions. You had a great Chinese scholar 
who was part of the team. You had one of the most brilliant minds from Lebanon. You had a Canadian. You had Americans. And while you sometimes hear criticism within the world of human rights, well, the way the Universal Declaration defines and lists human rights is too individually oriented and is too Western in its outlook, I think, and I would argue actually quite forcefully, that the Universal Declaration has stood the test of time. And really, it is hard to find a society in which the individuals living in that society don't want to possess the rights that are listed in that founding document of the modern human rights movement. Certainly there has to be cultural sensitivity. And quite honestly, the drafters of the Declaration of Human Rights didn't view it as a one-size-fits-all document. It was intended to be an architectural template that lots of different societies and communities and cultures could adapt to their own circumstances. What's tragic is how many nations refuse to adopt and adapt these basic fundamental protections and make them available to their own citizens. Nations, corporations, major sporting organizations perhaps. So how does this concept of human rights come into play when we're talking about scoring goals, shooting hoops, running races, and winning championships? Well, one of our interviewees for this podcast season put it best, I think. Sports is the metaphor for life. That's Andrew Duncan, who actually led one of the largest peaceful protests against the NBA in history, specifically because of how the NBA handled, or I think we could say mishandled, a human rights issue. We're going to hear a lot more from him in our upcoming episodes, but I thought this statement really encapsulated something powerful. The issues that we face in society, be they political, social, or cultural, we see all of these reflected in the sports world. And that is certainly true of the tension we see between sports and human rights. And this tension has been on display in 2022, perhaps more than we've ever seen it before. In fact, the Guardian newspaper published an article back in January of this year with the headline, Could 2022 be sports washing's biggest year. It was written by Karim Zidan, an Egyptian-Canadian journalist who covers the intersection of sports and politics. And it brings us back to that 21st century term we promised to break down for you, sports washing. Here's Zidan explaining precisely what it means. So sports washing is a term used to describe regimes using sports to manipulate international perception to cleanse their human rights atrocities. So in short, it's a form of image laundering. While the term may be new, the process is not. So you have many governments who have used this in the past. I can go back as far as I'm Egyptian myself. So I'll go back and say that the ancient Egyptians had their own form of sports washing. As a matter of fact, pharaohs were known for inviting pharaoh fellow leaders from places like Nubia in the south to come and attend wrestling matches in Egypt. And those wrestling matches would usually be between an Egyptian and a Nubian. And when the Egyptian would win, it would be a sign of pharaoh's superiority over the Nubians. And of course, geopolitically speaking, it was quite significant as well as a form of diplomacy. So it really dates back thousands upon thousands of years. So sports washing goes back even further than the Roman Empire, all the way to ancient Egypt. And the practice has continued since then. You're probably familiar with some of the less ancient examples of sports washing. 
Think about Hitler's Nazi Germany hosting the 1936 Berlin Olympics just before the start of World War II. This was the supreme moment for Chancellor Hitler. Or Putin's Russia hosting the 2014 Sochi Olympics, literally days before the annexation of Crimea. Putin was everywhere in Sochi, flashing a satisfied smile in the stands, photo ops with athletes. Then, just when the world's attention on Putin reached a crescendo, a nightmare on the other side of our TV split screens. The term sports washing is a relatively recent addition to our lexicon, but the practice is not new. Still, why was Zidane ready to call 2022 sports washing's biggest year? Well, it's because we have two of the most celebrated global sporting events bookending this year, and both offer blatant examples of sports washing. It all kicked off with the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. Le président de la République populaire de Chine, son excellence Xi Jinping. Beijing, the 24th so we spoke earlier this year with a number of people on the Granite State podcast, including your husband, Ambassador Dick Sweat, about why having China be the host of the 2022 Olympic Games was not necessarily the greatest thing. And some of the things that we got into were around, of course, their human rights record. One of the key areas that we focused in on was the treatment of the Uyghur minority population. Can you talk to us a little bit about what has been going on there for several years and why this is an important issue to be aware of? Well, as you say, for a number of years now, China has been engaging in what much of the world has properly designated a genocide against the Uyghur people. It's not the same genocide we saw committed by the Nazis during the Holocaust, where people were literally murdered, massacred, and killed in the gas chambers. But it does fit the legal definition of genocide in the UN Genocide Convention. And what they have been doing is, first of all, detaining over a million Uyghurs in re-education camps, where they are tortured where they are subjected to absolutely brutal conditions, where they are, of course, punished for their efforts to exercise their own religious freedom. The Uyghurs are a Muslim community. But beyond that, they have engaged in a variety of really abhorrent practices. They have taken Uyghur men out of the community and then basically assigned Han Chinese men to move into the homes with these Uyghur women to rape them, impregnate them, as part of an effort basically to destroy the identity of the Uyghur community. It is absolutely appalling. The idea that the International Olympic Committee would have awarded the Olympics to a country that is engaging in these kinds of massive human rights abuses is truly shocking. And of course, that's not all. We've witnessed China's brutal repression of Hong Kong, basically strangling what was this remarkable little outpost of rule of law and a measure of democracy and liberty and made it a complete vassal state of China with no freedom whatsoever. Obviously, the ongoing repression in Tibet 
And then China's all-out targeted attacks against democracy activists, human rights lawyers, religious freedom activists in China. So, you know, from A to Z, simply by the magnitude of their abuses, China is the world's number one global human rights abuser. And it is outrageous that they were given the Olympics. So one of the things that China uses to push back is to say, well, the U.S. is no better. We had the re-education camps for Native Americans. We have the systematic racism that still persists in this in this country. And this is something that we have talked about through the many different programs that we've done with the Lantos Foundation over the years. But for an audience who may not have heard this argument and, and the pushback, what is your idea or what is your reasoning to say it's not the same thing? Well, first of all, I think we need to be very, very careful about the tactics of brutal dictatorships that try and engage in this game of moral equivalence. There is no moral equivalence, and we must be passionate and powerful in absolutely batting down that absurd argument. Secondly, there is a vast, vast difference between a society that has the internal strength and humility to look at their own shortcomings, to acknowledge and want to wrestle with the ways in which they fail to live up to their highest ideals. That is the mark of a society that has the chance to improve, to reform itself, to continue its progress towards, if you will, a more perfect union. And so the contrast just couldn't be greater. Both the contrast between the magnitude of our moral shortcomings, which are not insignificant, and the vast, large-scale, brutal oppression of a completely dictatorial regime, and the contrast between a country willing to look at itself, willing to acknowledge its shortcomings, and one where every effort at that kind of self-examination is brutally repressed. It's a cynical tactic by bad actors, and we must not be so foolish as to let them get away with it. But I'd like to say something else, and that is that Tom Lantos, my late father and the namesake of the Lantos Foundation, led for a number of years a successful effort in the United States Congress to adopt resolutions calling on the International Olympic Committee not to award the games to China while they continue to engage in such abusive practices. And through two cycles, he was successful. But finally, they were not. And China did award the games in 2008. And the hope and expectation was that this huge platform and this huge opportunity, this sort of amazing coming out party, if you will, for China would lead to reform, would lead to greater liberalization, democratization, turning away from their terrible abuse of human rights practices. Sadly, just the opposite has happened. And so finally, at last, the IOC has begun to make moves towards requiring certain standards of human rights respect on the part of countries that they will award the games to. But I can still, in a way, hear my father's voice as he so eloquently argued on the floor of the house and in many venues against rewarding a human rights abuser like China with one of the most prestigious sporting events in the world. There is no religious freedom in China. There is no media freedom. There is no political freedom in China. Every single dissident in China 
is either in prison or in exile. Now that tells you a great deal about the nature of this regime. And the notion that by allowing them to bask in the glory of the Olympics, they will become democratic and open is about as valid as telling Hitler in 1936 that because you had the Olympics, you will now have a free and open society. It's nonsensical. But one of the things that I've been reading about as I prepared for this conversation is perhaps it's easier for organizations like the International Olympic Committee and FIFA and other major sporting organizations to work with authoritarian regimes. When a democracy has to try and convince its citizens that snarling their roads and I, I know the conversation that happened around here when they were talking about maybe Boston being a, a host. We I didn't was so want... disappointed. <laughs> I was so disappointed at that pushback because I think it would have been fabulous. But... Sure, but you know, our roads would need to be expanded and people would be pushed out of housing and things of that nature just based on the sheer needs of a system like that. A dictator can just say, yeah, guess what? This is happening. Uh, we're, we're building a new stadium where the slums used to be, uh, and these people have to find their own way. So how can we balance the challenges of hosting a huge event like the Olympics with the more important, in my opinion, needs of human rights? You know, the Olympics claims to stand for something. The Olympics likes to proclaim its high ideals and its great moral principles. And so, shame on them. Shame on them, yes. They used to say way back in the day about Mussolini, the Italian dictator. Well, at least he made the trains run on time. That is always going to be a bad bargain in the long run. When people are willing to ignore the outrageous conduct of brutal regimes for some perceived ease of getting a job done, ease of running the games. They've lost the narrative. They've lost the moral thread that should be guiding their actions. And so, you know, in the human rights movement, we are not averse to using what is sometimes called the name, shame, and blame tactic. And we need to do that with these huge sporting federations, whether it's the NBA or FIFA or the Olympics. We need to shame them into doing the right thing. Because sadly, whether it's the convenience that you referred to, the ease of sort of interfacing with a government that doesn't have to care what its people think, or it's their worship of the almighty dollar or yen, we have to call them to a higher standard. And shame on us if we don't. One thing before we move over to our discussion of, of FIFA, one thing that happened earlier this year was the diplomatic boycott of the games. And, and we talked about this in our earlier podcast on this issue. But can you talk a little bit about what that diplomatic boycott meant and why that was maybe the best way to go rather than asking athletes to boycott the games themselves? I think it was something. I think it wasn't enough. I think it did not go far enough. And while it was certainly better than nothing, I found it very disappointing that a stronger stand wasn't taken. One of the things that the Lantos Foundation has been pushing is for a new rule at Olympics, which is that leaders of dictatorships should not be permitted to sit in their country's boxes during the opening ceremonies. 
That's really the big platform moment for the political leaders. When their teams march in, carrying their flag, that's kind of their marquee moment. After the opening ceremonies, the attention really shifts to the competition. And I think it would be a very powerful statement if going forward the Olympics were to say, we welcome the athletes from Rwanda, we welcome the athletes from China, we welcome the athletes from any number of countries that have really problematic human rights records. But guess what? The Premier of China can't sit in the box. The President of Rwanda can't sit in the box. And the leader of North Korea or his sister can't sit in the box. Representatives of civil society or others perhaps can. But that would send a powerful message. Dictators are not welcome. Great. So 2022, the year of sports washing, opened with the Beijing Olympics. And culminates in what is arguably the world's biggest and most beloved sporting event, the World Cup, hosted by Qatar. I know I'll be watching various games when I can, but I'll also be thinking about all of the stories I've read about the treatment of migrant workers, the thousands of Filipinos and people from other countries who've been brought over to this small Middle Eastern country to make these air-conditioned outdoor stadiums actually work. Can you talk a little bit, Katrina, about what you've been hearing, what you've been seeing going on in this country in terms of migrant labor and their treatment? Again, giving the games to Qatar is a classic example of FIFA knowing the cost of everything and the value of nothing. The lives of these migrant workers have been catastrophic, really catastrophic. There have been dozens and dozens of deaths, hundreds of serious injuries, and those who have survived have been treated abysmally, living in squalid conditions, wages withheld, and really we don't have a full window into the reality of what's been going on there. From an environmental perspective, it's absurd to have the soccer games hosted in this country with brutally hot temperatures where incredible amounts of energy will be expended air conditioning a game which is ordinarily played outside in the weather. You know, the whole thing is absolutely absurd. And of course, beyond the immediate human rights abuses that have taken place, is the underlying history of Qatar's dismal human rights record, particularly when it comes to women's rights, LGBTQ rights, freedom of the press. And of course, we're seeing that freedom of the press being constrained even further in the run-up to the World Cup and during the World Cup. So again, it's just an example of countries that have no business hosting these major sporting events using their financial wealth to bribe or corrupt. Kind they of, yeah. actually proven to have bribed right. FIFA officials to get this to come to their country. That's right. And so it is a disaster from a human rights perspective, but it is also pulling back a curtain on the underlying corruption. And both of those things need to be confronted. Yeah, I mean, I've read recent reports of the workers who were living in and around the stadiums who were building these stadiums so that this could happen, that were building what ended up being their own homes right now, being forced out with no warning because now we need those rooms for hotels. We need 
to house all of the thousands of people who are going to come and watch these games. And how many people do you think who are going to go to Qatar and stay in these hotel rooms, stay in these apartments, how many of them do you think are going to actually know that there were people living there before and were kicked out with no notice and no help in getting housing elsewhere? We can't answer that with 100% assurance, but honestly, there's no excuse for them not knowing. Let's be clear. There's been a lot of talk about these unsightly parts of Qatar, these outrageous practices in the lead up to the World Cup. The treatment of the migrant workers, it's been reported. The human rights issues in the country, it's been reported. You know, the journalist Saddam that we heard from earlier, he thinks that all the negative exposure still might not matter in the end when it's competing against the sheer popularity of the beautiful game, soccer, or to much of the world, football. Qatar is also relying on the fact that once the World Cup actually takes place, that fans, as fickle as we know sports fans are, will turn a blind eye and just simply be there to watch the football. The football event that doesn't happen except once every four years, making it all that more exciting for people to see. Now, they're also relying on the fact that once the World Cup's over, finally people will turn the side and talk about something else entirely. The trend will be over, right? People won't talk about Qatar anymore, while Qatar will then start to reap the true benefits of this event that it hosted. Worrying about whatever else it wants to host in the future, at the end of the day, now everybody knows what Qatar is, that Qatar exists and where Qatar is located on the map. It's no longer just a region dominated by Saudi and the United Arab Emirates. It's a region that now have Qatar as one of its major players as well. So we can understand why countries like China or Russia or Qatar would want to host a major sporting event. We can see what they would like to get out of it. But this raises a really important question. Why would the sports governing bodies and major sports organizations allow this to happen? Why wouldn't they put their foot down and demand that countries hosting events like the Olympics and the World Cup maintain the highest human rights standards? The answer to that question is pretty complicated, and we touched upon this a little bit earlier. A lot of it has to do with money, of course, and that raises the whole issue of corruption which you brought up in sports. We've talked to people who have said that organizations like FIFA and the International Olympic Committee actually prefer working with authoritarian governments because it is so much easier for dictators to just get what they want. They can build a stadium where they please, they can shut down the traffic to clear the air. They can pour whatever resources they want into putting on a great show. Things obviously get a lot trickier when you're dealing with a democracy that demands a pretty high degree of transparency. And allows for people to air their grievances, as we uh, talked about with the Boston bid earlier. But there's also the basic fact that these organizations just haven't traditionally viewed it as their responsibility to even consider human rights, which is in a way, actually pretty shocking. Here is Andrea Florenzi, director of the Sport and Rights Alliance. At the time when Qatar was chosen to host the World Cup, and then when Beijing was chosen to host the Winter Olympics in 2015, human rights was not part of the bidding process. Can you imagine that the IOC only adopted human rights or you know, recognized that human rights are part of their responsibility that was a month ago, so more than 10 years after the UN Guiding Principles were adopted, we're seeing the IOC recognizing that the human rights framework is part of their responsibility. 
Florencia is referring to the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, adopted in 2011, more than a decade ago. But now, it seems as though sports organizations are being forced to take a closer look at human rights and examine just what their responsibility should be. There are a lot of people who think that sports organizations, federations, and leagues would never bother to do this without being pressed. They would rather just focus on profits over principles. And history has certainly shown that there is plenty of truth to this assumption. So if sports organizations are unlikely to focus on human rights based on their own altruism, then the question becomes who should be exerting the pressure needed to move sports organizations in the direction of protecting and upholding human rights? Is this the job of democratic leaders and governments? And let's be clear, even democracies aren't immune from having to reckon with their own human rights issues. Should it be the sponsors of big sporting events? Should it be the fans? We are going to unpack a lot of these questions in the coming episodes of our podcast season and really look at how various groups can and should influence the sports world to have a stronger focus on human rights. But one of the groups I haven't mentioned that actually wields considerable power is, of course, the athletes. And this is a group that we're going to see speaking out in much greater force and numbers than perhaps ever before on the issues that range from, for example, the treatment of migrant workers in Qatar, to sexual harassment, to equal pay for women athletes, to racial equality and social justice. Yannick Kluk is Director of Inclusive Excellence at Virginia Commonwealth University's Center for Sport Leadership, and he sees this as a vitally important moment for athlete activism. The number of athletes speaking out now seems to be higher than ever before. And of course, that's also elevated by some of the happenings in society, like the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Black Americans at the hand of law enforcement, the re-energized Black Lives Matter movement as a result of those. A lot more athletes, you know, felt like they had to be part of the solution. They had to speak up. They had to use their platform to help eradicate racial injustice, specifically in the United States, but globally too. If you look at some of the leagues in Europe, They've been part of those conversations. It's a really a unique moment in history that I think in tens of years from now, people will point back to this current moment and say, wow, that is a spark in a recent wave of activism that we really haven't seen in that format before because it's more athletes speaking out, more athletes across leagues, across sports, across organizations, across countries organizing to target the institutions that govern sport and you know, holding them accountable for their role in promoting those injustices. This is a very exciting development and something that we should absolutely feel encouraged by. But at the same time, while we're seeing many athletes willing to bravely speak out about certain types of issues, we also see a great reluctance among many athletes, especially athletes with a huge and powerful platform to speak out about issues that they either don't think impact them or when those issues are interwoven with their revenue stream. A great example that I've heard used to describe this double standard is LeBron James. He has been a powerful and important advocate for social justice in America, but he has been unwilling to step out of line to say anything negative about China. And it's not hard to imagine that this is because the NBA stands to make a lot of money from the Chinese market. So there are a lot of important questions to ask about what role athletes should be playing in calling out human rights abuse in calling on their teams and governing bodies to take a stand for human rights, 
in rallying their fans to human rights causes? And obviously, some of these questions have very different answers, depending on where the athlete lives, the stage of their sports career, their level of fame and influence, and how much they stand to lose by speaking out. An example of an athlete who has really risked everything to speak up for human rights is the NBA player Ennis Cantor Freedom. And we're going to be speaking with him later in the podcast. So that is an episode you won't want to miss. Well, I know I'll be listening. But there is really so much good that an athlete activist can do when they use their voice to elevate important causes and human rights issues. I had the opportunity to speak with local New Hampshire Olympian, ski racer Julia Ford, who competed at the 2014 Sochi Olympics. I think she put it beautifully. My personal belief is that sports should bring people together and is the purest form of competition, sportsmanship, love of something, especially greater than for oneself. And so this is also values that we should align with in the greater world. And so those two things, you know, what's happening in the world and you as an athlete do not live in isolation. Those things are intertwined and we as athletes can try to influence and help the world and our voice should not be quieted for that, but it also needs to be used for positive and not for negative influences. Julia had a lot to say about the power of athlete activism, and I know she's going to feature more in upcoming episodes. I feel like there is so much to dig into with this topic, and we've only been able to scratch the surface about the way that sports and human rights intersect and interact. That's true, we have only been able to scratch the surface, but I hope we've given our listeners a lot of questions to ponder as they get ready to sit down and watch the World Cup in Qatar or as they stream the live golf tournament funded by Saudi Arabia, when they read about the NBA's deep ties to China, or when they hear about athletes choosing to promote an authoritarian regime instead of calling them out. This is a complex and challenging subject, but if we don't start asking these tough questions and looking for solutions to these challenges, nothing will ever change. Fortunately, we have a fantastic season of The Keeper coming up, which will do a deeper dive into many of these questions. We'll be hearing more from some of the voices in this episode, as well as others you haven't met yet, including Ennis Cantor Freedom and Khalida Popal, the co-founder and former captain of the Afghan national women's soccer team. So there is still a lot to come, and I really hope that our new friends from the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire Universe will subscribe and keep listening for the remainder of the season. Absolutely, and I encourage them too. I know I will be awaiting the rest of the episodes, and I hope that all the regular listeners of The Keeper will join us for our monthly Global in the Granite State podcast, where we bring you interviews to help you better understand how New Hampshire is connected to the world and what major events are driving conversations today. We would love to have you. Okay, so what do you think, Tim? How did this powers combined experiment turn out? I mean, pretty biased, I guess, but I think that it's been a really fun conversation, had a lot of great information and I hope that people like our format that we've created here today. I agree. I think we may have to do this more often. 
until the day when Tim and I decide to join forces permanently. You can find me, Katrina Lantos Sweat and the Keeper Podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast, or at lantosfoundation.org. Well, thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to our special episode of The Keeper and the Global in the Granite State podcast. Global in the Granite State podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at wacnh.org. Thank you for listening to this special episode, a joint production of The Keeper and Global in the Granite State. This has been a joint production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. The producers for today's episodes were Chelsea Hedquist and Brittany Smith. The audio technician was Chelsea Hedquist, and the audio editors were Brittany Smith and Trent Gunst. The music for today's episode was Rior by Audio Rise Out. Thank you so much for listening.